0: Thanks, John. Great job reading that long passage there. Um, As you know uh, from the series so far, if you've been following along, the author of Ecclesiastes is most likely Solomon. Uh, Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs, uh, but it was his father, David, who wrote most of the Psalms. And so I want you to think this morning for a moment about where Solomon received his theological formation uh, was it mainly in school somewhere? I'm sure he did go to a, a great school. Uh, or was it at home? I imagine that it was probably from his father David and maybe his mother Bathsheba as they led him in devotions at night growing up. Imagine with me one of those nights, David is there with Solomon at bedtime and and David says to Solomon, hey Solomon, um, I wrote a poem today I want to tell you about. Before I do that, I've ever told you before that before I was the king of Israel, I was actually a shepherd. And Solomon says, maybe a shepherd, that's like the worst job in the whole kingdom. I mean, why Why in the world were you a shepherd, dad? And he said, you know, i it was a tough job and it's one of the lowest paying jobs in the kingdom. But it's an important job and it's an important job where we learn something important about the Lord. And he's you know, he said, you know, as I was a shepherd, I reflected upon what it was like to live with sheep. And he, Solomon, let's let's say he said, "Wow, Dad, sheep! I've only heard of this about sheep that they're really stinky and difficult, and that they wander off." And he's like, "That's absolutely true. Uh, it's absolutely true." I want you to listen to this the song that I wrote today, as I was reflecting on what it's like to be a shepherd and how that reflects upon the character of our God. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, I want to hear it, Dad. I want to hear it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters, and he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me me. Solomon, I want you to know that wherever you go and whatever happens in life, and I'm sure you've had these conversations with your children, wherever you go, whether it's by the green pastures or the still waters or you're in the middle of life and it's tough and it feels like you're in a dark canyon, God is always there with you even if you don't feel him. He is there. I want you to imagine this kind of conversation happening with Solomon because what we find here in 1 Kings 8, is Solomon at probably the greatest moment of his political career. He has just built, with the help of many other people, the temple. It's just been completed. This, 1 Kings 8, is the dedication service of the temple. And we know that his father David was on his mind that day because he starts out in the speech, he just talks about his dad. His dad had a dream to build this temple and yet, God told David, no, it's not going to be yours to build. It's going to be something for your son to build. And so, David is on Solomon's mind that day as he is there, as he's about to give this incredible prayer that John read for us in 1 Kings chapter 8. I want that to be the backstory for us. As we consider Solomon's formation theologically, the way that he prays reflects God, the Father, as the protector, as the shepherd of Israel, as the one who will be with Israel throughout their history. And so we're there in 1 Kings 8, but then in Ecclesiastes, you've got to kind of think in multiple time periods in Solomon's life here. Actually, Ecclesiastes 5 is written probably toward the end of his life. He's maybe toward Claire's stage of life. He's he's later on. He's got some wisdom he wants to share, some distilled wisdom about what it's like to live on this earth and how we should fear the Lord and and fearing the Lord and why it's so important for us. And so in Ecclesiastes 5, we're toward the end of Solomon's life. So today what we're going to learn is this. We're going to spend some time looking at, first of all, from Ecclesiastes 5, the good standard we are called to live up to as God's people. It's a good standard that we're called to live up to. And then second, we're going to look at our inevitable failure to live up to that standard from First Kings 8 and Psalm 24, which is our call to worship. And then finally, we'll end with the boundless love of God for wandering sheep, also from First Kings 8 and John chapter 10. Let me pray for us. God, would you give us hearts that are open to hear from your word? This is good news for us. We're so grateful that you are the good shepherd, that you lay down your life for the sheep. I pray that that message would resonate deeply in our souls this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the good standard we're called to meet from Ecclesiastes 5. So if you have been with us throughout this series, you know that the theme of Ecclesiastes is actually found at the end. The key verse is found at the very end. It's in chapter 12, verse 13. Where he says at the end, the sum of all of this that I've written is is this, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the summary of the law. What he's doing in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, is he's kind of highlighting that verse, double clicking on it, blowing it up. And he's saying, this is what the fear of God should look like in your life. And as we read this, this is important for us to remember. As followers of Jesus, we're actually called to live up to or to seek to live up to this good standard that is set for us in these verses. Instead of immediately dumbing it down or explaining it away, we're called to look at it and go, yes, this is good. This is the standard that we are called to live up to. This section reads like, it might be when you're reading through the book of Proverbs. For me, when I'm reading through Proverbs, it's like I'm in my car and I'm driving And I'm like, you know, okay, I I think I kind of understand that one. That's a a really good one. I should probably think about that more. I kind of think I'm doing pretty well in that area. And then a huge speed bump. It's like ba-boom. Wow. Okay. That's an area that I really need to grow in. And the amazing thing about the Proverbs and the speed bumps that you hit is you could read the same Proverb like the next day or certainly the next month. And it's a different verse that is the speed bump for you. It's one that you're like, oh, wow, like I actually thought that, I kind of understood that one, but that one's really convicting right now. That's like this section for us. So this section is like a big speed bump, you know, for me anyway. I'm reading through this and I'm like, woo man, there's a lot here that I could uh, definitely live in a better way toward in my life. So we're going to walk through this slowly enough for you to, to feel the speed bumps The first section, verses 1 through 3, is about being careful with your words before God and with others too. He starts out, he says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. So what does this mean? So when you come before God or before other people, you should watch what you say. You should be careful with your lips. You should listen more And talk less. He goes on, he says, Don't be rash with your mouth or let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Let your words be few. A fool's voice at the end, he says, has many words. When you pray or when you talk about your life, don't go on and on about how much you're doing and how faithfully you're living. He's saying to pray like that before God is just utter foolishness. To, to offer a prayer like that to God is is really not in line with your own situation before Him. This shows a lack of humility, and it shows a lack of wisdom. Let your words be few. To offer a prayer like that is a sacrifice of fools. You know, this last week I had two different people in the church confront me about ways that my words hurt them. And I really appreciated both of these people coming to me and telling me how my words that were spoken not well and a bit uh, rashly, I would say, without a lot of thought, um, hurt them. Two people uh, within a couple of days. And I just want to tell you, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that they came to me. How else would I know? that I had hurt them. It gave me the opportunity to repent to them and say, I'm so sorry for that. And it gave me a chance to understand where they were coming from so that I can grow as a person. The title of this sermon is Church in the Real World. That is church in the real world. No one, certainly me, gets it all right with their words. If you've been in a, in a close personal relationship with someone, If they're close to you, then I can guarantee you they have hurt you in more ways than one, but certainly with their words. The fact is that when we we grow closer together, when we build community together, the opportunities for blessing one another are greater, and the opportunities for hurting one another are much greater. Why? Because you get to see the real me and you in the real world that, is what it's like, And so we need to be able to have conversations where we can say, you know, this is how your words impacted me, and where the other person can say, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? And then you're able to say, absolutely, I forgive you. There really is no other way for the church to function, unless we're just ignoring things, unless we're just posturing before each other. So I apologize. They both forgave me. I appreciated it so much that they came to me. This section goes on, Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 7. It's about following through on the vows or the promises that you make. It says, when you make a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. So... It gets into not just our words, but the commitments that we've made through our words. This is what it means to fear God, remember, in the context. If we fear God and we want to follow Him and please Him, then we should want to live in a way where we our words bless one another and bless the Lord and we keep our vows to the Lord and to one another. But, you know, how does this go? I think about the use of our money. I, there have been times in my life and I bet in yours where I've been convicted and I've said something to the Lord in my heart like, Lord, I am going to give more generously uh, to you and to your cause in the world. And then I get busy and I get distracted and I forget. I even forget how much I'm giving. You know, everything is done automated now, you know. You know, we have to remember to go back and go, now how much am I giving And, and what did I say I was going to give? I mean, we can just get really distracted and lazy But we've made commitments to the Lord in these these areas of our lives. It could be money. It could be time. You know, you listen to a sermon or you listen to a podcast or you read a book and you're like, you know what, I am going to serve. I'm going to use my gifts. I, Lord, I'm going to do it. And then soccer season starts and, and work projects get going and we forget the vows we've made or we don't forget and we just decide I can't do it. I cannot live up to the commitments that I thought that I could make. You know, I believe that the Lord is generous to us. Um, <laughs> uh, the rest of the sermon is really about this. This is the hardest point. But I mean, God is so generous to us. He's not up there, you know, just, just like going, you know what, actually, back in August of 2022, you said blank. That's not what he's doing. He loves us, but the reality is God is generous, but we can't presume on his generosity, Right? We can't just be like, well, God's generous, so it doesn't really matter how I live my life. That's really not it. It does matter. It does matter how we live. God is generous, but he's not up there going, you know what, it doesn't matter to me at all if you give your money or you give your time. That's not it. It does matter to the Lord. It matters to him that we follow the Lord. He goes on, he says, Let not your words lead you into sin. Let do not say before the messenger that, oh, I made a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Oh man, again, this falls under the, the hasty promises category. So many of us have said things like, sure, I'll reach out to them, I'll follow up with them, I'll help out, but you don't. Those are maybe more minor things in life, but then there are more major commitments that we've made in life. We've made vows to love our wives. We've made vows to love our husbands. We've been vows to be elders or pastors. or We've taken other commitments onto ourselves and we've said, I'm going to live up to a standard, but we lose our theology or our ethics or we fail to uphold our vows. We've said to ourselves and to the Lord, I will be a faithful mother. I'll be a faithful father. But we don't. We aren't. Always. A lot of the time, we're not. God, I swear I will not sin again in that way that has now become a habit for me, and then you do. Lord, I swear, I promise that I will read your word and pray. I'm convicted about it. Help me follow through this time and then we don't. The reality is, there's a standard, and we fail <laughs> deeply and desperately to meet up to that standard. Every single one of us have made vows, some of them small, and some of them really, really large, and we have failed. The big question this passage asks is this, what does the Lord, how does the Lord respond to people who fail who fail him, who don't just fail a little bit. They're not just like, oh, you know what? Mostly I got it right this week. But no, like we really actually utterly don't meet the mark. We don't just barely, the, the word for sin in the Greek is an archery term where you miss the target, you miss the bullseye. It's not as though we're just barely missing the bullseye. We're, the, the arrow is flying off into the woods constantly. Like we're, we're actually not very close to the bullseye. So how does God respond to us when we fail, when we don't meet the standard? And that leads to the second point, our inevitable failure to live up to God's standard. First Kings 8 and Psalm 24, back to those devotionals where David taught Solomon about the Lord being our shepherd. Since that time, Solomon has learned a few things about his parents and about his coming into being. He's learned that his mother's first husband was a man named Uriah, who his father had murdered similarly to how Putin murdered his rival this week, probably. Exactly. He didn't do it himself. He just ordered the people that worked for him to do it. It was taken care of. Why? Because David thought Bathsheba was hot, and he was powerful, and he did it. Solomon has learned that this is how he came into being. He's learned that he had an older brother. An older brother who died in infancy as punishment for his father's and his mother's sin. Solomon has this entire backstory. He's not just read Psalm 23, he's also read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, which were his father's outpouring of confession and repentance about his great sin. This sin of David's is much greater than the Spanish Football Federation's sin, if this is what happened, of kissing Hermoso, the great, uh, the great player for Spain, on the lips. David's sin is like a million times greater than that. You realize, and yet the whole social media world is literally falling apart which I think if it happened, it's wrong, let's do something about it, fine. But I'm trying to put it in context that if we're outraged by that, you should be a million times more outraged by David's son. This is Solomon's family. This is Solomon's life. Solomon goes on to stand there in 1 Kings 8 with his own backstory fresh in his mind. And he calls his people in his prayer to believe and to put their hope in not their own righteousness and not their ability to meet God's perfect standard, although we are called in that direction. He calls his people to put their hope in God as the great shepherd of the sheep, the great shepherd of Israel, who is a God of incredible forgiveness. What does God do? Let's look at the list of failures in 1 Kings eight twenty-seven through 53 that Solomon anticipates will come about, He's actually prophetically praying into the future of Israel and he's naming certain events that will happen in the future and how badly Israel will screw it up and how much they will need God. He starts in verse 31 with just a general prayer. He says, if a man sins against his neighbor, that's kind of general. He gets more specific. He says in verse 33, when Israel is defeated in battle because they have sinned as a nation against God, this happens over and over and over again. In verse 35, when there's a drought because the people have sinned against you, we just covered this in Elijah and Elisha. When there's a famine or slavery or plague because of sin against God, this happens also in the time of Elijah and Elisha and other places. And then in verse 46, he says, "'If your people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, "'and you are angry with them and give them over to the captivity of an enemy, "'and they are carried to a faraway land.'" This happens in the time of the exile. So he's saying, this is going to happen. I know it. I know these people. I know myself. I know my dad. I know my mom. We are going to, in big and small ways, really screw up the good things that God has done for us. Solomon knows the heart of man. He says in verse 46 of chapter 8, there is no one who does not sin. Romans 3.23 puts it this way, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. But Solomon, thankfully, doesn't just anticipate the occasions of sin after the temple is dedicated. He also anticipates the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, that will come to them as their great shepherd. So the third point this morning is the boundless forgiveness of God for wandering sheep. Also 1 Kings 8 and John 10. I had a counseling professor, great professor, his name is Jim Cofield, Jim Cofield uh, taught us a a counseling kind of way of understanding how to lead people along in the pathway of change. He says most people come into the counseling room and they're there because they have had someone that has sinned against them. Someone has sinned against them and they're trying to figure out how to process what has happened to them. And he called this the I'm a victim stage, which is not not derogatory in any way but that's why they're coming in. They are learning they've been victimized by someone else's son and they need to talk to you about it. And that's that's a really important part of the process. But where you want to lead them is not just to understand, yes, they've been victimized by other people, but also stage two in our growth and development maturity in Christ is they need to learn that they also victimize other people. They also have sinned against other people in ways that will probably put them in the counseling room one day, too, if they haven't been already. This is the whole idea of, you know, you're pointing one finger out, there's four fingers pointing back at you. And this is life. We learn and we, we learn that we hurt other people, too. You know, Solomon went on and, you know, his father really screwed up. Well, Solomon went on and really royally screwed it up even worse. Just three chapters later, after this apex of his reign, this amazing prayer, he goes out, and we learn that he has the same problem his dad did, but times a 1,000. He had a 1,000 wives and concubines. And many women, foreign women, this was Solomon's downfall, really. Solomon needed to learn that he wasn't just victimized by his father's story, that he has now victimized a lot of other people through his own son. That would be growth for him if he ever learned that. So you have to learn that we also, we're not just victims, we also victimize others, but that's not the end of the process. That would be despairing. There's another stage in the process where we realize that we have to move toward dependence on God. Yes, I have been hurt deeply. Yes, I have hurt others people, other people deeply. And so the third stage is I have to depend on God for forgiveness and grace with everything in my story and in my life. Salvation is not found in living up perfectly to the standard. You won't. You haven't. If you think you have, then think again, please. That's not it. That's not where salvation is found. Salvation is not found in grappling with and figuring out how you've been hurt by other people in a way that you're okay with. That's important. You should do that. It's an important part of the growth process. Salvation is not found in owning all of the ways that you have sinned against everyone ever and understanding that and really owning it and saying you're sorry as many times as you possibly can. You should really think about that question. That's an important one, but it needs to drive you somewhere. It needs to drive you to depend on the grace of God. Salvation is found in the Lord, It's not found in your perfection. It's not found in understanding yourself and coming to terms with your own story. Salvation is found in the God of grace, the God of forgiving grace. Back to 1 Kings 8, as we walk through this this list of things that Israel will walk through as a nation, verse 30 starts the theme of forgiveness. The theme here is, that you should have heard over and over and that you'll hear now, is the whole future of Israel is banked on this. That they have a God of forgiving, limitless grace. That they have a God who is the shepherd of their souls, who will not give up on them and will forgive them over and over again. Verse 30 says, And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. And when they pray to this place, listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you do, forgive. Verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor and he comes back to you taking an oath to, f- to follow you, hear from heaven, later on he says, and vindicate him. In verse 33, when Israel is defeated in battle because they've sinned against God, if they turn to you and acknowledge your name, hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people. Verse 35 and 37, when there's a drought, famine, slavery, or plague against your people because of sin against you, Verse 38, hear and forgive. If any foreigner, verse 39, they shall hear of your mighty name and your outstretched arm. I love that. If they come to Israel and they come and pray to to you, God, hear in heaven and receive that prayer. In verse 46, if your people sin against you, there's no one who does not sin and you are angry with them and give them over to the captivity of an enemy and they are carried to a faraway land. Yes, that will happen. Verse 47, yet, they turn to you in the foreign land and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly and they repent with all their mind and heart. Verse 49, then hear their prayer and plea and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Solomon in this great moment in the life of Israel and in his own life is saying, our one hope as a nation is not in our own righteousness, it is in the forgiving grace of God. That is it. Lord God, we are banking our entire future hope on you being a God of forgiving grace. You know, sometimes in the Old Testament, we hear prayers like this and we, we ask the question, well, how will God respond? What will God do? You can read the rest of the Old Testament to see that God was faithful and he did forgive. There were, con- there were some consequences, for sure, for not following him, but, but God forgave them and he loved his people But if you want to fast forward and look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can know whether or not Solomon's prayer for eternal, um, limitless grace would, would be answered by God. Is God that kind of forgiving God? Is he that kind of forgiving? Where in all of these circumstances, over and over and over again, where the people will screw up? And God will continue? Will he continue to forgive? Will all of these prayers get answered? Well, Jesus answers the question for us with a resounding yes in John 10. David wrote of the Lord being his shepherd, but Jesus in John 10, 14 through 18 says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own, on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Will the prayers of Solomon in 1 Kings 8 be answered? Will God be a God of eternal forgiveness and grace? Or are there limits? This is an outrageously important question for you to care about. Are there any limits to God's grace? Is there any point at which you can screw up so much, you can keep, you cannot keep a very big vow that you've made, like a really, really important one? You can really go back on your word. You can actually deeply mess up and mess up other people's lives in the midst of your messing up. Is there a point at which you could be at a place in life where God's forgiveness no longer rings true? For you. Well, Jesus Christ says this I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I do this because I want to. I want to lay my life down. I want to give my life as a sacrifice for the sheep. I want to give up my life. I am giving up my life. I will give up my life so that the grace of God can flow to needy sinners without limit in the actual facts of history. This is not just a prayer that was prayed by someone in the Old Testament. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, not just saying he's the good shepherd, but saying in order to be the good shepherd, I will lay down my life so that I can bring the sheep in to the fold. I can protect them forever from sin through my death and through my resurrection. Jesus, the good shepherd, makes sure that we know that all of Solomon's prayers will be answered and all of your prayers will be answered. Because any time you pray to him asking for forgiveness, absolutely, it will absolutely, you have been forgiven and you are forgiven in Jesus Christ with his limitless grace. So how should this affect us as a church in the real world? How, How should we live as a church in light of this Great, incredible news of the gospel. Well, the first thing that should happen is we should let go of all of our self righteousness. We should let go of all of our posturing before each other as if we're better than we are. That goes for pastors, elders, it goes for worship leaders, it goes for everybody. Like, we're all equally messed up and in need of the grace of God. We all need God's grace completely, 100%, to be able to have a relationship with God. It is not based on any merit of our own. I had an incredibly refreshing coffee with someone the other day where in the first 15 minutes, he told me almost all of the worst things that he's ever done. And I got to assure him, he already knew, the only reason he could confess that to me is because he already believed the gospel. Only the gospel makes us that free with our brokenness. But I was able to just assure him again as a pastor of the grace of God. I'm not saying that you need to start every conversation that way, Um, but we can if we want to because we don't need to posture for each other. We can just live in God's grace. How else should this affect us? We should be quick to repent to God and to each other. We should be quick to repent. If we don't have any self righteousness to hang on to, then we can quickly repent. If we know that our relationship with God is based on his grace and not on our merit, then when the Lord points out something in our lives to us, or someone else points out something in our lives to us, we don't have to share with them all of the ways that we've actually done quite well this week and then say, But I hear what you're saying. We can just say, You're right. It's not a threat, it's just an opportunity to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us to have freedom in him. He doesn't want us to hold on to fear or shame or guilt. We can just be free in the grace of God, free to repent. And then finally, we should be quick to forgive each other. We should be quick to forgive each other. If we have a God of grace who forgives us like this, like think about Israel, think about David, think about Solomon. Think about yourself, think about really before God who actually is perfect and he he actually this is the standard just how much we don't measure up and think about the fact that Jesus Christ died for you to forgive you of all of that and more than you even know, and what you'll do in the future. And he did it so that you can be a part of his family, so that you can be free. And then think about holding on to, holding on to an an unforgiving spirit towards someone else who who needs you to forgive them. In the moment when someone has hurt you really deeply, it, it might make sense to be bitter. I mean, of course, it hurts. But to have a God like this, who forgives us like this, it should free us up to be able to forgive each other in the church. This is the only way, as I said earlier, for the church to operate in the real world. Now that may, there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. I'm not saying that all of a sudden you're supposed to trust every single person who's hurt you. With, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But we are called to forgive. We're called to forgive. And sometimes you've got to forgive more than once. Like you think you forgive someone and then, You know, it's like a ball at the pool you put under the water, and it's like, boop, there it is again, there it is again. It might come up 50,000 times, but every time you can say, God, I'm letting go of that, I've let go of that, because you forgave me by your grace. We should expect for people in the church to hurt us sometimes. We should absolutely expect it. So you go ahead and, like, if you don't expect, if you're hoping, if you're new to our church, and you're hoping that this will be the church where you're not hurt, I, I just, you gotta let that go. That is not gonna happen. Like, we're not perfect at all. Like, not even close. I'm the chief of not perfect people, okay? Like, we will absolutely, we will mess with that, that value you have of never being hurt again in church. <laughs> um, that's not the way to answer that. The answer is not to find a new church where people don't hurt people. The answer is to believe that God forgives and to extend forgiveness to one another. We have a God who extends limitless grace to us when we repent. Can we expect that from one another? When I mess up or you mess up in the church, can you expect to be forgiven of your sin? The answer is yes, yes. You don't have to wonder if I admit to this, if I own up to this, will I be forgiven? The answer is absolutely yes, you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. There's no, no reason to hold on to th- hide things and, and keep things to yourself. You can admit and confess and lay that down. Will we put limits on grace with one another? In the real world, in the real world of the church, if we put limits on grace, we're just gonna end up siphoning off people. Ah, I don't wanna be around them, be around them, 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 them. And then you got like three people that you wanna be around. We, have to, we can't have limits to grace. We have to learn to let go of hurt. We can do it by God's grace and we can forgive one another with boundless forgiveness like God has for us. What would it look like for us to be free like this? What would it look like for us in the real world that instead of the norms being, I'm going to try to be perfect, if I'm not, I'm going to fake it, and hopefully people won't see, And then if they do, hopefully they'll forgive me. What if we switch that to, I'm really messed up. I know God loves me. I believe other people love me. I can talk about those areas where I'm really not measuring up and know that that's what the church is. The church is a place of grace from God. It's going to take some retraining because everything in the world, everything in the company that you work for says, fake it till you make it. Never admit to anything. If you do, get HR involved, you know? God says, admit to it. Give it up. Receive the grace of God. Let that grace transform your life. We spend a lot more time in the world than we do in the church. And sometimes in the church, we look like the world. So I pray that we would be able to live more in light of what Solomon's here, that there is a great and beautiful standard we're called to meet. We do not meet the standard, but Jesus Christ is a God of boundless, forgiving grace for needy sheep. Let me pray. Oh Lord, you died for your church. You died for us. You died for us individually, and you died for us corporately. You died for Trinity Park Church. You died for this church, these people, us together. You died so that the gospel would normalize our culture more than it has so far. And so I do pray that your grace would pour out on us, that we would see ourselves as those who have been loved eternally, not for the good things we've done, but in spite of the bad things. Yet you have fixed your love on us And I pray that we would be able to fix our love on one another. Father, would we be able to be a church of redeeming grace? Lord, I pray that for every single person here. I pray that your grace would reign here. In Jesus' name, amen.